Well, good morning, everybody, and I uh, add my welcome to that already given. Um, last Sunday night, um, we had uh, a lovely evening in our home with open doors, just talking about the persecuted church. And it was a great reminder to us, I think, that um, having meetings like that in our home is a terrific way of getting people who don't normally come to church to come along and be part of our fellowship. So can I warmly commend to you the Luther film on uh, Saturday, the 30th of September. You'll see the date is in your green prayer diary. And won't you start praying now about who you might want to invite along to join us for that event. There will be other films that we are going to show later in the year, but um, do please mark it in your diary, make sure you come, and uh, do please think about who else you might want to invite. Good, well, won't you keep your Bibles open, and perhaps also the bulletin that was handed to you when you came in, and the outline, which uh, will tell you where we're going to be going in the next few minutes. And uh, as you do that, uh, let's pray. All scripture is God-breathed. So, Lord, we take that fact, that truth, as we look at Joshua 24 this morning. We pray that you would breathe on us as we look at your God-breathed word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've noticed um, that there are certain moments in our lives when um, everything changes and we're suddenly confronted with decisions that we cannot avoid. Might be uh, leaving school or graduating from college or university uh, or starting your first job or getting married or moving house or, for those of us of a certain vintage, retirement. Those are all significant moments which are exciting and very positive in their own way, but the familiar pattern of life as it has been in the past suddenly comes to an end. And now we've got a number of choices to make about the future. We can't avoid them, we can't dodge them, Uh, If you don't like making decisions, and some of us don't, uh, those can be rather uncomfortable times, but they are decisions that have to be faced. Uh, What church shall I join? Where shall we live? What kind of career am I going to pursue? Do I buy a house? Do I rent a house? Uh, What's my attitude to money? going to be? How will I use my time when I'm not at work? Well, these and many more decisions besides will face us. And in each case, whether we like it or not, the choice, the decision, is inescapable. And it will usually have lasting consequences. Now, if we're wise... In those moments, we will want to look back and review the lessons that we've learned so far before we make any big decisions about the future. Now, that's the kind of situation that we've got 
as we come to the last chapter in the book of Joshua. Most of the chapter is devoted to Joshua's speech to Israel and it's a kind of state of the nation address in which Joshua calls Israel to a significant moment of decision. Uh, If you want a key verse, then I think uh, verse 15 is probably the obvious candidate. Uh, Verse 15 says, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now the setting of this chapter is highly significant and it shapes the entire occasion. Verse 1 says that Joshua assembled all the tribes at Shechem. Now that is a name that pulsates with significance throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Shechem was the place where God first promised Abraham that he would give him numerous descendants and a land. Now that was all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And it was at Shechem that Abraham built an altar as a sign of his faith in God's promise. Shechem was also the place where Jacob uh, bought a piece of land from the sons of Hamor. And Jacob built another altar there in the name of the God of Israel. So like Abraham, Jacob believed God's promises and proved his faith by building that altar. And Shechem is also the place in chapter 8 of this book where Joshua led the nation to renew their covenant commitment to the Lord after their defeat and subsequent victory at Ai, chapter 8 of Joshua. And now here in the very last chapter of the book, God's promises have at last been fulfilled. And the great nation that God had promised to Abraham now gathers at the very place where God had first promised that the land would be theirs. And now, at last, it is. So, towards the end of the chapter, in verse 25, we're told what this ceremony is all about. Can you see verse 25? On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws. Now if you like, uh, this chapter is the formal signature of the covenant document by the nation of Israel. And the structure of the chapter reflects the form of covenants or treaties that were made in those days between conquering kings and the people that they ruled. And they usually followed a a standard pattern uh, in which people would acknowledge the authority of the king and commit themselves to his service. 
Now that's what's going on here. But of course, we're not trying to pass a history exam this morning. But Joshua 24, you see, is the living and enduring word of God to us. And therefore, it's full of both encouragement and challenge as we review in thankfulness everything that God has already done for us and as we trust him for what is yet to come. And I say that because this is not really a chapter about Israel and Joshua. It's actually a chapter about God and especially about God's grace. I think we've already said, haven't we, in previous studies that um, God is the hero of the book. It's not Joshua. It's the living God. Because, of course, the Bible is first and foremost God's book about God. And it speaks to you and me this morning because the character of God doesn't change. His character is exactly the same today as it was when he spoke through Joshua in chapter 24. So if we learn things about God from this book and from this chapter, then can you see that we're learning things about the God with whom you and I are in covenant relationship through our Lord Jesus Christ? There's no kind of unbridgeable gap between Joshua 24 and 2017. That God is our God. He is the living, faithful, promise-keeping God who's broken into our lives in order to save us. And Israel's God is the God that you and I want to worship and to serve. So if we've got that truth firmly in our minds, let's look at the chapter together under the three headings that are on the inside of the bulletin that you were given this morning. Notice firstly that for the people of God, the past is defined by grace. The past is defined by grace. Verses 2 to 13. Now, traditionally, uh, in these covenants, the author of the covenant begins by introducing himself. And then he reviews his relationship with the people that he's making the agreement with. That's what's going on in verses 2 to 13. Joshua speaks on behalf of God, who you'll notice in verse 2 is described as the God of Israel. This is what the Lord the God of Israel says. Now that was actually the name that Jacob used when he built his altar at Shechem. And Yahweh, the Lord in capital letters in our Bible, is the name for the God of covenant faithfulness. And both of those ideas are combined here. The God who the patriarchs worshipped is the God who makes and keeps his promises. This is the God who is addressing his people. And from verse 2 onwards, Joshua, speaking the word of God, 
reminds Israel of everything that the Lord has done for them over the many centuries. So this is all about God's grace in the past. And you'll pick that up very easily by noticing the first person singular verbs uh, as Joshua speaks for God. Just look at them with me. Verse 3. God says, I took your father Abraham. Verse 4. I gave Jacob and Esau. Verse 5. I sent Moses and Aaron and I afflicted the Egyptians. Verse 6. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. Verse 8. I brought you to the land of the Amorites. Middle of the same verse. I gave them into your hands. Verse 10. I delivered you. You see, their entire history is the story of God's overflowing grace. And there are four specific sections here. Um, In verses 2 to 4, the story begins with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the significant phrase here is right at the end of verse 2, where we're told that Abraham's family worshipped other gods. So you see, when God broke into Abraham's life, Abraham and his family were idol worshippers. Isn't that rather amazing? But out of sheer grace, God moved Abraham from his very comfortable life in Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq, and made him a nomad guided by God. So verse 3, But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. Now that was the beginning of the great family. In fact, verse 3 in Joshua 24 covers the whole of Genesis chapter 12 all the way through to Genesis chapter 21. Ten chapters summarised in just one verse. And God made two promises. The promise of land and the promise of a nation. But as so often with God's promises, it did seem, didn't it, for a very long time, as if those promises weren't actually going to be fulfilled. And that often happens in our experience too, doesn't it? But that's how God strengthens our faith and develops our dependence on him. If we think that God is sometimes being rather slow in fulfilling his promise, that's usually the reason. Well, here, God promised Abraham a great nation, and so first Isaac is born, and then Esau and Jacob. Now, interestingly, Esau has a land, the country of Seir. But Jacob's sons, who are the inheritors of of the promise, they have no land, only a very long stay in Egypt, where it looked as if they would never actually inherit the land of Canaan. Their circumstances seemed to contradict their destiny. And yet all the time, God's grace was quietly at work behind the scenes, 
waiting for the sin of the Amorites to reach its full measure. But to the Israelites at the time, it all looked completely hopeless. But they were people under grace, and people under grace live by faith, not by sight. And then suddenly it happened. Verse 5, I sent Moses and Aaron, and through the plagues and by means of the Passover, verse 6, I brought your fathers out. Now once again, verse 5 is an extremely compressed verse. It's got the whole of Exodus chapters 1 to 12 in a single verse. And verses 6 and 7 record the crossing of the Red Sea. But then there is a dramatic shift of focus. There is a shift from the past into the present in verse 6. Notice this. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea. And for the rest of the speech, you is the main pronoun. Because, you see, Joshua is now talking to his own generation. Many of them had uh, experienced much of those long years in the wilderness. Their parents, of course, weren't allowed to enter the land because of their unbelief and rebellion. But Joshua's generation are now at the heart of the story. And they know all about God's grace in their own experience. And so in verses 8 to 10, he records their experience of God's grace before they crossed the River Jordan and entered the land. They had tremendous victories that are recorded for us in the book of Numbers. And how did they win those victories? Middle of verse 8, they fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you and you took possession of the land. It was all because of God's grace alone. And so the story in verses 11 to 13 is brought right up to date with all the the victories of the conquest which we were learning about in the first half of the book. (coughs) And the end of verse 12 makes the point in the most memorable way. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. Now, of course, in their battles, they were always using their swords and their bows. But verse 12 is making the point that their victories were not achieved by their own strength or skill. The conquest was only by God's power. And now they're enjoying the the fruit of God's grace in very real and tangible ways. Just look at verse 13. I think verse 13 is a, a beautiful verse. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. Everything you, you now have is totally dependent on God. And that's because God always keeps his promises. Now that's the whole point. God makes his promises to people who do not deserve them 
And then he fulfills those promises by his mighty power. So God can be trusted. Indeed, he must be trusted. It's lunacy not to do so. And friends, as New Testament Christians, there is absolutely no difference in the way that God's grace overflows into our lives as well. You remember that the Apostle Paul reminds us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, the knowledge of God's will, our inheritance of the eternal kingdom. All these blessings are the product of God's grace in the gospel. None of us deserves any of it. We contribute nothing. We add nothing. We are people of undeserved mercy from start to finish. And it is God's grace to us in the past that defines the people we are today. And so Joshua moves on secondly to spell out the present demands of grace. The present demands of grace. Verses 14 to 18. Now there's an important principle here and the principle is this. That covenant privileges always carry with them covenant obligations. Now that was always the case in the ancient political treaties that I mentioned a moment ago because first of all the the conquering king would lay out all of the things that he had done for the people uh, and he would spell out the nature of his relationship with the people and then he would call upon them to acknowledge their dependence on him and their submission to him as Lord. Their covenant privileges implied covenant obligations. Now, of course, we know all about that in our own everyday experience. Um, People today are always talking about their rights, aren't they? Particularly here in South Africa. But they sometimes forget, don't they, that those rights bring with them particular responsibilities. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to uh, a very good school uh, back in England uh, and it was a privilege which opened lots of doors for me later in life. But the headmaster would often have to speak to the whole school about our behaviour in public Uh, and I think that was because he often received numerous complaints uh, from the people of the town about uh, rowdy schoolboys doing this or that. And in assembly, he would say something like this. Boys of this school do not chew in public and do not cause any kind of public nuisance. Now, the reason he had to say that was because, of course, we did. And it was his way of trying to impose the demands of privilege on disobedient teenagers. Now that's what's going on in verse 14. Can we all see verse 14? In verse 14, Joshua says, you've been given all these privileges, 
But there is an obligation here. Now fear the Lord and serve him. And in the next sentence, throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped. You see, Joshua is addressing the people on the basis of what God has just said about the past. And he's giving them the practical application. What is the application? Well, it's fear. Fear is to be the underlying attitude and motivation. In many ways, that sums up the response of the faithful Old Testament believer to God. It's the attitude of a redeemed sinner before a holy God. An attitude of proper awe and reverence which submits the whole of life to his authority. Now that is the the inner response of the heart that Joshua is calling for. And he says the evidence of that will be the outward response of the life which seeks to serve him with all faithfulness. Can you see that phrase in the text? Now the Hebrew word there means completeness or literally with integrity. Um, Holding nothing back. So faithful service is the appropriate response to the God who has been so very faithful to us. And that faithfulness carries with it the, the pressing implication of verse 14, throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped. Apparently there were some Israelites who were still hanging on to the gods that their ancestors worshipped. It's, it's almost beggar's belief that they would have done that, but apparently they did. But this was where Israel always went wrong. They were always trying to combine the worship of the Lord with the worship of other gods. And of course, you and I are no different. So Joshua's purpose in verse 15 is to bring them to make a solemn and decisive choice. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. You see, you cannot add to the Lord the gods of the culture all around you because the God of overflowing grace demands exclusive, wholehearted allegiance. But why does he say very interestingly in verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. It's rather an odd phrase that, isn't it? Well, I think it's because Joshua knows that there is a resistance or at least some hesitation about this. You know, he knows what's going through their minds and maybe through yours as well. Do I really want to give up my comfort blanket of the idols which I and everybody else treasures? Do I really want to stick my neck out and choose the Lord as the ultimate authority in every part of my life? And especially in those parts of our lives 
that are coming into your mind and mine right now. Because you see, God through the text is beginning to challenge you and me to serve him exclusively. And that I think explains the rather strange language of verse 15 where Joshua says that for some of us it might seem to be undesirable to be fully committed to the Lord. A bit over the top. So it was a day of decision for Israel and there's a sense, isn't there, in which each new day is a day of decision for you and me as well. Let's think about this together for just a moment. Am I really prepared to give God control over my marriage and my family? Or do I look to my spouse to give me what only God can give me? Have I made my spouse an idol so that he or she actually has first place in my life rather than God. Perhaps for the students among us the challenge might be a bit different and you might need to ask yourself am I willing to put my studies into his hands? To be content for God to govern my time and my priorities so that unlike perhaps some of my fellow students, I am not consumed by my work idol, by success, by recognition, by needing top marks in every assignment and exam. Am I really willing to put all of that into the hands of God and say, Lord, every part of my life belongs to you? What about the future? Am I willing to put my future in God's hands as well? To trust him for whether I marry, and if so, who I marry? To ask him for wisdom about where I live and what kind of house I might buy and how I might use the resources and the gifts that he's given me? Am I really prepared to put all of that into his hands. See, I think Joshua is putting a very real challenge before each one of us. Choose this day whom you will serve. You know, am I as the pastor and you as people involved in promoting the gospel, are we prepared to put our Christian service into his hands? not resolutely determined to go into full-time ministry come what may and certainly not to aspire to being a Christian empire builder but content to fulfil the smallest role if by that God is glorified. Now those are very real challenges, aren't they? Because you see there are real idols competing with God all the time for control of your life and mine. Now, of course, nobody else can make this choice for you, but I want us to be clear that our true allegiance, our real allegiance, is revealed every single day by a hundred different choices that we make. So choose this day whom you 
will serve. And of course, in light of God's overflowing grace to us in the past, surely all of us will want to say with Joshua, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Well, here in the text, um, the people responded very positively. Um, They recognise everything that the Lord has done for them uh, in the redemption from Egypt and faithful provision and care through all the years of wilderness wanderings and in the conquest. And so at the end of verse 18, they say, as one man, we too will serve the Lord because he is our Lord. Now you might think, mind you, that uh, when Joshua heard that, that they'd be um, kind of overjoyed and absolutely delighted about it and the book would end on a high note and uh, everybody lived happily ever after. But the Bible is, of course, always far more realistic than that. And so we have a final section of the covenant ceremony and it reminds us that the future is dependent on grace. Not grace the person. The future is dependent on grace. Verses 19 to 31. I wonder if it struck you um, as Grace read it for us that verse 19 is rather odd. Um, It's a staggering verse actually. I think it's a staggering comfort but it doesn't look like that when you read it first, does it? Joshua said to the people you are not able to serve the Lord. He sort of burst their bubble, doesn't he? I mean, why say that when they've, they've just said, no, we're going to serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you can't. Actually, he's not being negative. He's saying, what you've promised is impossible. And the rest of the verse explains why. God is holy and God is jealous. See, God is set apart from all idols and from his people by his righteousness and by his moral purity. There is no flicker of deviation in his character. And that's why he will not share Israel's devotion with any other gods. He's jealous, rather like a faithful partner in a marriage is jealous, He loves his his spouse so much and so faithfully that he is jealous that his wife's love should not be shared with anybody else. And so Joshua's response underlines the, the absolute and awesome nature of this God of grace in his holiness and in his jealousy. And you see, what he's actually saying is My dear friends, it is not a small thing to surrender to God as Lord of your life. Why not? Well, verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. You see, he loves you far too much to allow you to get away with your sin. And so the only appropriate response 
to this holy and jealous God who's been so good to us is to serve him wholeheartedly and completely. And so in verse 21, the people repeat their commitment, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua's reaction is to accept their choice. They can't do it in their own strength. They can only do it by depending on God's grace. And that means keeping themselves from idols and from counterfeit gods. It means both a once and for all choice and a daily affirmation of the Lord as first in our lives and of our total dependence on him. And you see, it was on that basis that Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. They said, verse 24, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And so, verse 26, Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He sets up a large witness stone. He sends the people back to their inheritance with the the contract signed and a life opening up for them of devotion and service to the Lord alone. When Joshua dies, verse 29, he's buried, you'll notice this, he's buried in his inheritance, promises being fulfilled. And then Joseph's bones that they brought up from Egypt are buried at Shechem, which is the place of covenant fulfilment. And then Eliezer, who is really the last link with the wilderness generation, well, he dies and is buried. But now as we finish, just look with me at verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. It's wonderful, isn't it? But you see, you've only got to turn one page in the Bible to the book of Judges, and it's a totally different story. The next generation turned away from the Lord, and he did bring a series of disasters on them, just as he promised. Now that's a warning to us. It is not a small thing for any one of us to say we will serve the Lord. Because you see, our covenant with the Lord has been sealed by the precious blood of Jesus. And he's lavished on us all the privileges of his covenant grace. Free forgiveness, membership of his eternal kingdom, rest from all our works because we've been justified by the finished work of Christ and he's brought us into our promised land but we also have covenant obligations obligations of wholehearted allegiance to the Lord as sovereign in every part of our lives And you know we can't do it, not even for a day, apart from his grace. But if we hold fast to the Lord Jesus, 
If we commit our lives into his hands at the beginning of every day, well then his grace will enable us to serve him and love him all our days. And if we do that, though we will stumble and fail at many points and constantly need to come back to the cross, we can say with Joshua that we and our household we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts, each one of our hearts, far better than we know ourselves. So write your word not only in our minds, that we understand its truth, but deep in our hearts, that we might receive its message. And thank you for the grace, so much grace, that is always available that there is always more grace ready and available to us whenever we turn back to you. So Lord, please energise our wills that we might daily commit our lives into your hands as devoted servants of the Lord Jesus. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.